Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our topic today is parents with no surviving children, and our guest today is Rick Yachty. Rick and his wife, Cindy, are the parents of Christopher and Matthew. Their sons died from a neuromuscular disease, each at 10 years old, in 1983 and 1984. They have been with the Compassionate Friends chapters in Michigan, formed an alternate meeting site chapter in Paris, France, and currently assist with two chapters in Virginia. Rick serves as president of the board of directors of the Compassionate Friends and is a trustee of the Compassionate Friends National Foundation. In addition, he is the administrator and a faculty member for the Chapter Leader Training Program. Rick and Cindy have conducted workshops at the National Conference and have also organized a Midwest Regional Conference. Rick and Cindy understand the pain of losing both their children and becoming childless. They have dedicated much of their lives to helping other grieving parents find joy again. Welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you, Heidi, and thank you, Gloria. I'm I'm pleased to have a chance to be here today. It's wonderful to have you on. Uh, Before we get started with you, I should tell our audience, this is a pre-record today, so you will not be able to call in, unfortunately, but you can email us through our website, healingthegrievingheart.org, and these shows are, you can download them um, off the website or off the Compassionate Friends website. They're on iPod, and uh, they're all archived, and you can download them uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Okay, so Rick, um, our, our show today again is called Parents with No Surviving Children. Could you tell us about your children, Christopher and Matthew? Christopher and Matthew were the joys of our life. They were uh, born back in 1972 and 1973, which sounds like a long time ago to most people, but it's still pretty fresh in our memories. The When Christopher was just about a year old, uh, we were expecting our second son, Matthew, and he was, Christopher at that time, our one-year-old, was diagnosed with a neuromuscular disease called spinomuscular atrophy. And, and how did you know that he had a problem? He was uh, not using his legs. He wasn't sitting up. Um, very limp in general. Mm-hmm. But when he was born, he looked perfect. Perfect, yes. And at, at one-year-old, he looked fine, but he just wasn't achieving anything uh, physically. Okay. None of the milestones. No. Mm-hmm. And uh, we learned that time, we learned a lot in a hurry about spinal muscular atrophy, which turns out to be a um, genetic disorder, mm-hmm. uh, something that was inherited from both of us. Wow. And it hadn't, to our knowledge at that time, hadn't appeared anywhere in either of our family trees, so it was a bit of a surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, when our second son was born, the doctor told us he was going to be fine, But after about three months, we could see that some of the similar things were starting to show and had a little more thorough testing done and found out that he, too, was affected. Oh, what a heartbreaker. Absolutely. They were, the prognosis was maybe uh, two, three years that they would live with this disease. And we were fortunate. We had them both for ten and a half years. Wow. And uh, they were tremendous children. What now, they, they were very bright guys, weren't they? Didn't you what say? they didn't have in physical strength, they had in their mental capacities. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
they taught our older son taught himself to read at two and a half. And oh my gosh! Our younger son thought he was slow because he waited till three and a half. Wow! Um, they used to just completely astound the people at school, and they enjoyed working with them at the school too because they were so bright and uh, just devoured books left and right. So they were a great joy to interact with and spend our time with, and and to watch them develop in their in their minds so heavily. But uh, the bodies, I'm afraid, didn't didn't develop, and they uh, were very frail, very handicapped. Never walked, never crawled, never rolled over, and uh, had power wheelchairs when they were in preschool age, and uh, gave them some independence. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things where not only do we, you know, if I can back up here a moment, as Charlie's book and the points you read from it are excellent, mm-hmm. and I think all brief parents can relate with those. And that's the biggest, one of the big things that we have with Compassionate Friends is we're all sharing uh, a life where we're trying to go on without those children that have died. There are some individual facets that everybody addresses. In our case, we have some additional facets of what our grief is. One, they were special needs children, and our grief started with a diagnosis Mm -hmm. as opposed to a parent who, you know, as yourself, Gloria, whose child was killed in a car accident and there was this sudden trauma. Because, Rick, you were mourning the loss of the children you would never have to a certain extent. To a certain extent, and we were mourning, the, you know, the difficulties that they were experiencing throughout their life. And and you were probably also mourning the fact that you knew that they wouldn't live a full life. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Now, did you uh, have a lot of support and help, Rick? We had a lot of good support in the medical community. We had mm-hmm. tremendous doctors. We had good support in the educational community in our neighborhood and the teachers that were just tremendous with, with the uh, boys. Um, we both came from very small families. Fortunately, my parents lived very close to us, and uh, my mother in particular was, is, was tremendously involved with helping us. Did you have siblings or, and, or does Cindy? Each of us just had one brother. Um, they weren't near us. They weren't uh, in the area to be able to help with things, and uh, so we kind of had distance from the rest of the family, and that was always something that, uh, and that's something to this day that's difficult. Mm-hmm. So, you, so your siblings weren't there as a support system because they didn't physically live near you. It sounds like uh, my brother didn't physically live near us okay. uh, for a short period of time. Her brother did, mm-hmm. um, but there still wasn't a uh, support system available through the family. Mm-hmm. They didn't make the connect. Not everyone can deal with this kind of thing. Right. And that's what we realized. And I know my, my wife's brother, who is, who is, uh, now died from cancer himself, so she is now a brief sibling also, um, I know he said in his later years that uh, he just couldn't understand, you know, how somebody can handle that. He didn't feel that he ever could have. But it's not something that you, anybody's, ready for. It's not something that you think can I or can't I. It's yeah, you're just, just kind something of that happens. That. Yeah. It happens it and happens. you step up to it and you yeah. don't stop and question, am I going to handle this? You just do because you love your children. You do what you, you need to for them and you love doing it with them. Right. I love that you love doing it with them. Tell us some of the things you like doing with the boys. Oh, just getting out. Just getting out to malls and uh, taking vacations like we took them a number of times to, uh, to Disney World. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
being able to expose them to new things and to new people, they loved it. They loved meeting people. Um, for a number of years, they were the poster children in the Detroit area for muscular dystrophy, and that just took them out into the public and gave them a chance to meet so many people and for so many people to meet them. So we enjoyed sharing them with others and um, taking them to places like museums and that. With their intellect, they were just fascinated with things like that. And, and how did they get along, Christopher and Matthew? Did they get They're, along fairly well as brothers? They were best friends. That's great. They were absolute best friends. They uh, understood that each of them had the same handicap. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had they shared a lot of interests. Whether it was in those days, it was the very early days of video games that they were learning, and uh, the same toys and the same not the same books so much. Our older son was the more serious one. The younger one was you know the typical. If he could do it from a classic comic book, he'd prefer it. <laughs> <laughs> so I gave them each their own personality. But we have so many good memories, and even though it's been as long as it has for us. Uh, they're a part of us every day. Absolutely. And how do you carry that on? Uh, I was wondering with the continuing bonds thing. How do you, how do you keep their memory alive? And what do you do? And how do you carry it on? Well, we keep we keep their pictures around our house. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about them all the time. Something always triggers a memory on either my wife Cindy or myself. We'll have a, an event. We'll see something. We'll say, Oh, Christopher would have liked that. Matthew would have liked that. Mm-hmm. And that just makes them a part of our daily conversation yet. Mm-hmm. Having the pictures around makes them a daily conversation item. Um, we learned over time to be able to share with other people, um, non-bereaved parents, to share with them that we are parents, that Christopher and Matthew were our children. We, we moved, we've moved a number of times with my job and then now with my retirement uh, from the area that we lived in and raised our children in. So we've had to go through many rounds of, hello, I'm new here, introducing yourself to people, having people ask you those standard few questions. Mm-hmm. You move to a new community like we did. It's, uh, hello, where'd you come from? What is, you know, what company do you work for? Oh, do you have children with you? Mm-hmm. And that's the showstopper for so many people. And, and how do you answer that? What do yeah. you say? It, it probably depends. It depends, but most of the time we look at somebody and we say, is this somebody we're going to know mm-hmm. or potentially would know? If it's the taxi driver, we gloss over the topic. Um, and we say a little prayer to ourselves and says, sorry, Christopher and Matthew. You know, they, <laughs> they know we're not denying them. We know, right. you know, but we usually tell people right up front because people don't see us as active parents. They look at us and they see Cindy and Rick the couple. Mm-hmm. They don't see us as a family. They don't see us as a mother and a father. And it's important to us to have that identity and to be able to tell people. But for us to be able to tell them we, you know, that we were parents, that we were active parents, that we still consider ourselves parents. I would say you were probably some of the most active parents in the world. <laughs> and we address that pretty op- open with people. Now, it was difficult in those early years because we had all of those emotions of right. um, being, you know, very outwardly sad, being very, uh, you know, even times hostile or whatever, or the angers and things that come up. So you had to be able to tell people in a way that you didn't scare them off. Mm-hmm. It's something hard for a brief parent to learn, and whether you have surviving children or not, 
a lot of those old phrases were other people's greatest fear. We bring up a topic that they don't even want to think about, let alone have to discuss. And it's not that they're cruel, but they just aren't ready to discuss that type of thing. So if we can bring it up in a non-intimidating environment. Right. It brings up their own issues because as parents, our biggest fear is that our own children are going to die. Right. And to hear that that's happened to somebody else is scary for people. Yeah, I was saying to Heidi and I were talking a little bit about Liz's email because in her email she says that it was difficult for her to listen mm-hmm. to the show. Well, she works with bereaving, uh, bereaved people. So um, uh, Heidi was saying that sometimes it's difficult for people to even hear that we do a show on it. Well, yeah. well like I told my mother, too, Liz has two teenage boys, and Charlie's two boys died. So, I mean, to hear that show just probably struck a chord on a personal level also. Yeah, people will say, oh, you're doing a, a radio show, and I'll say yes, and they'll say, what's it on, and I'll say, tell them, and they'll be like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's difficult. Well, um, when we look at this, I know this is difficult, and I and I wouldn't broach this as deeply as I am, but I think it's for our audience and out there. Uh, Christopher and Matthew did not die together. Mm-hmm. They died a year apart. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, did you Did Christopher die immediately or was he ill for you know a while or how did that go and then how did Matthew deal with it how did you all deal with it that was yeah that was a very difficult period because uh, the boys went through many times of many hospitalizations where uh, respiratory distress was the the issue Mm -hmm. and they would be weak and they would come back and Christopher just slowly got a little weaker every month and had evolved to where he was on oxygen at home we had a number of the different rooms of the house piped, piped with oxygen so that uh, he could be in one room or another and have his uh, a light amount of oxygen to help him. So Matthew recognized what his brother was going through. He recognized his brother couldn't sit up in a wheelchair anymore and had to just lay down all the time. Um, Christopher knew that he was dying. Mm. And one afternoon, he and my wife, Christopher initiated it, and they had a tremendous discussion. Mm. fabulous discussion, one that I think sustains Cindy to this day. And he was very mature and very rational, and he knew that he was going to die. And then he was at peace with it, I think. Um, he was a very spiritual child. And that, you know, I've worked with, uh, yeah, I'm a nurse, so I've worked in the hospital with uh, dying children, and there, there's an amazing something about them, the maturity uh you know, even though they're children in their play, there's an incredible energy around them. And I think that, that we saw that with Christopher, too. The uh, It came down to his last day, and we knew it was his last day. And the four of us spent it together at home. And at one point, I took Matthew into uh, uh, the bedroom, and he and I used to be a thing that, when things got a little too hectic or too many people around or something, he and I would go lay on the big bed and talk. Mm-hmm. So we went and laid on the big bed and talked that day. I like and that. That's a nice ritual. I told him that, uh, you know, Christopher was dying mm-hmm. and that this would be probably his last day. And uh, Matthew looked at me and he just said, well, Dad, then I guess I'm next. Wow. And that was his only comment. Mm-hmm. That's really tough. So he lost his best buddy, too. He lost his best buddy, and he immediately, after Chris's death, Mm -hmm. took on some of the advanced symptoms that Christopher had. Wow. 
and he was, you could tell he was in a depression. And we took him to a couple of psychologists that um, day, and we weren't able to uh, really crack the situation. And then one day, um, they had a fabulous pediatrician who uh, who cared for them. Now, not only cared for their medical needs, but very much cared for them. Mm-hmm. And we went and talked to him one day, and he said, let me sit down with him. He took him in, and they had a great conversation, and it just turned him around. Wow. Uh, he was somebody that Matthew trusted, and he basically said, Matthew, we're all going to die someday. We just don't know when for sure, and we have to enjoy what we can. Mm-hmm. And uh, that made a difference for him. One minute. Mm-hmm. So basically live in the present and enjoy each day. Mm-hmm. Right. And now. for us... Knowing that Matthew's time was going to be coming too, and not knowing whether he had another year or two years or what, um, we realized now we pretty much put the grieving for Christopher on the back burner. Yeah, and I was going to ask focused. you about. It wasn't a conscious thing that we sat down and said, uh, um, you know, we we have to hold this together for him. It was just knowing that we needed to put all of our efforts into turning things around for Matthew, mm-hmm. who was, uh, you know, grieving both his brother's loss. And as I suspect, his own imminent yeah. death from the uh, same disease. So we really focused on him, and uh, it was, you know, in the years since that we look back and we say that it was pretty much came crashing down around us after Matthew was gone. So once uh, Matthew died, were... you grieved both Christopher and Matthew's death together. Yes, in yeah. many ways, it was it was a kind of a joint one. We we remember them individually, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, the grief is for them collectively in in, right. in that situation. Mm-hmm. And so tell us about, for our audience who are newly briefed, tell us about those early months and year, and what, how did you get through it? We got through it, uh, you know, by sometimes, sometimes it's by putting your head in the sand. Um, one of the things that we also didn't realize then, but do in retrospect, I think many um, many people suggest this, is, that as a couple, you have to let the other one take their own course. And as close as two people can be, they still aren't going to grieve alike. Mm-hmm. And uh, there'll be times that one will have an up day and the other will have a down and vice versa. And I think that what we went through was, was somewhat chaotic after that. Um, I know I probably put myself into my work and uh, used that to... Uh, uh, get myself going each day, you know, and saying I had a career, I had to get up, I had to go do this work. On the contrary, Cindy's whole life and career had been taking care of two special needs children. Right. Mm-hmm. And she had her degree in education, but she had chosen to be a stay-at-home mom before we knew about their problems right. and had totally focused on them. And like she said, all she ever wanted to be was a mother. Mm-hmm. So the loss was her whole day. Mm-hmm. I had a job to go and to. And her identity in so many ways. Oh, yes, and her identity was part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, in Charlie's points of things to do and that, it's making major decisions in your first year are not a good idea. Right. I wish Charlie had been my next-door neighbor at that point. <laughs> um, I, we needed somebody. We Seven months after our second son died, we pulled up roots, sold the house we raised them in, and moved off to France mm. uh, with a job transfer. So you left your support system. Our whole support system, um, 
everything behind us. And the people that knew them. Right, that's what I was going to say, Mom. People that knew your kids, Christopher and Matthew. Right, and people all around us, our our minister and families all said, oh, this will be good for you, you'll have a chance to start over. We didn't want to start over. Mm -hmm. We wanted to go back. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was nothing to look forward to. And that was the hard part, and it was terribly hard for Cindy, terribly hard, because once again, we got there. I had a job. I had people there right away. Um, I had things to do, places to be. She didn't, and her grief, I didn't even know at the time because I, we were kind of in a fog. Uh, I didn't know how serious hers was. Uh, she used to sleep all day and then get up by the time I got home. Mm-hmm and try and make it look like she had been doing okay. Well, also being around people that spoke uh, um, French, <laughs> being in French. Yeah, in different countries. <laughs> a whole that's different true. culture. And it's not only a language difference. There's, there is a cultural difference yeah. in that. And uh, they believe in, they, you know, your support comes from within your family, not from with, you know, from outside. Mm-hmm. So that was very difficult. And Cindy tried very, very hard. She She tried so hard. And she worked at being involved in things like American Women's Group and our church there and getting out and getting to meet people. But the first thing everybody said was, where do you come from? What does your husband do? This is unfortunately a very sexist relationship environment with uh, uh, husbands being transferred. And, oh, do you have children? Right. Yeah. And immediately she wanted to tell them and she would often break down. And so that just made it a very... Uh, it made it awkward, and a lot of people um, weren't able to handle the situation, and, and we were awkward about it in our in our way, too. Um, it was a difficult period, and we stayed two and a half years. And Cindy had some counseling, and we just said one day, that's it, we have to go back to the States. Mm-hmm. And things weren't getting any better. And we came back, and it was after we came back to the States then that uh, this was almost three years uh, that would make it three and a half and five years after Christopher died, um, we found compassionate friends. And so that it wasn't until then. Five years after five years. our first son's uh-huh. death. And we were probably not much better then than we had been one month after. And that made the difference for us. Um, I always tell people, I said, the Cindy found the organization through a, a friend who had lost a child told her about it, and it was good for them. She told me about it. Like so many good husbands, I <laughs> I said, well, I'll go, I'll drive, I'll go with you, and because you think this is something they need. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to that first meeting with her, and I've been going ever since, and I didn't talk for the first three or four, I'm sure. Um, but once they got me started, I haven't quit either. <laughs> Uh, and when you hear five years, it's never never too late. I've uh, been, you know, uh, 22 years since my son was killed, and I've been more involved in Compassionate Friends in the past four years. So um, it's a, a wonderful organization. Uh, what do you think was a turnaround for Cindy, Compassionate Friends? Definitely. And what about Compassionate well, were... Friends was it? Was it the fact that everybody there had lost a child? Yes. Okay. We could share. We could talk openly. We were hearing other people say and express some of the feelings that we felt mm-hmm. that we really hadn't had a chance to express to other people. And your grief was not being interrupted. You could tell your story and say whatever you needed to say and be open and honest. 
Exactly. And we didn't have to be afraid of upsetting somebody else. Mm-hmm. You know, and you could be yourself and you could open up, and that's something that we really hadn't had an opportunity to do, I believe. And I think that made the difference for us. Um, at a later period, uh, we were back in the States for seven years, and an opportunity to, came up to go back to France again and uh, with my job, and so we did. And we we always said we had our heads on much straighter that time, and we were <laughs> able to appreciate it. Cindy still had her bouts with, with, with a lot of difficulty and depression with it, and it was when we were back there the second time that a um, psychologist and doctor um, diagnosed her as having depression. Mm-hmm. and started her on antidepressant medication, which made a world of difference, mm-hmm. a world of difference. So the combination over the years for her, both of compassionate friends, being able to take uh, medication has just uh, turned turned things around dramatically for her. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you also tried to adopt, didn't you? We talked about it. We, we made an effort. Michigan at the time when we came the first time back to the U.S., um, had some very stringent and difficult laws. They looked at me, and I think I was 41 at the time, and they said, hmm, 41, 42, you're, you're over 40. We aren't going to talk to you. You go to the bottom of the list. Wow, mm-hmm. things have changed. Yes, they have, and I, I, I'm thrilled that uh, for others that it's a more open environment now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I was telling you that Heidi has just adopted from China. I know that sounds so exciting. And I'm over 40, Rick, not to disclose my age here. Not to disclose mine. Exactly. I'm out in Gloria. <laughs> so, um, Rick, I, I wanted to ask you, um, what did you and Cindy cope? You sounded like you did cope differently. We did. Yes, I think we did. Um, she's much better at sharing. She read a lot more grief books. Um, than I did. Um, I think in some respects mine was going off to work and going, you know, I traveled a lot with my job while we, in those years afterwards, and, and I had a lot of solitude time during travel that maybe was my time to think and, uh, you know, and remember. Hers was, uh, you know, finding friends that she could reach out to and that, that would befriend her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of the ways that you, you meet people is through your children. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's, a, of course, a lot of other ways to meet people, but it's your children kind of bring the world into you. Um, I was wondering, what was the most difficult part of not having surviving children? I know it probably was different for you and Cindy. Well, I think, well, number one, uh, you said what was, was the most difficult, and I think it's it continues. It's and the most difficult, okay. I think one of the things we've recognized is a lot of the issues of no surviving children aren't going to ever go away. Mm-hmm. The fact that we're we see friends and nieces and nephews and that go through the milestones of life, and they have their graduations and marriages, and now they're starting to have their children. And our friends, um, you know, having you know, very much we you know we love our friends and that, and to see our friends be able to uh, enjoy their their children and their grandchildren going through these milestones, and and now to be with them and hear they're having, you know, another grandchild or something. The continual reminder of the mm-hmm. things that we aren't experiencing in life that we had, we set out to be. We set out to be parents. We set out to be grandparents. Um, that was our intention in life. And to be continually 
reminded that those things aren't going to happen for us. Um, we get to the point that we're older. I'm what I just turned sixty, but Cindy's much younger. Um, <laughs> I'll say that for her since she'll she'll listen to this. Um, no, she is she is younger than I am, but uh, the fact that we see people that their children help them when they get older. Right. And I realize that uh, um, it's just the two of us. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, and you come down to that in life. It's just the two of us. And by odds, someday it'll be just one of us. One minute, one minute. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that loneliness is is part of what uh, you continually address as a parent with no surviving well, children. continual losses over time because... Like you said, you face the loss of having grandkids. Right. Okay, so. I really feel like a strong tribute to Christopher and Matthew on this show. I know they're wonderful children, and I know that they want their parents to be happy. And I know their parents have been happy, and Rick is one of the most happy, upbeat people I know. So, Rick, I want to know how you've done it with all this. How yeah, have how you made have you your life? Optimistic? How have you been able to make your life so meaningful? Mm-hmm. I think that's... It's a tribute to Christopher and Matthew and a memory that uh, these were two children who loved living. They loved other people. They could laugh, and I still hear their laughter in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of it is um, Cindy and I did a workshop for a number of years called Finding Joy Again. And one of the aspects of it was to sit down and sort of count your blessings. And the blessings that we counted were the gifts that we got from our children. Um, the gifts that they gave us of teaching us to be much more compassionate people, teaching us to appreciate the day because they're short and they're numbered, uh, to appreciate a friend, to all of the things that they taught us. And I think that was part of a turnaround for us and one that says we can do things, we can reach out and try to help somebody else in their memory. And one of the key things is that we, many of us have learned through compassionate friends is Helping others helps yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that that continual um, reaching out in their memory and their support has been a uh, one of the things that has uplifted us and given us a chance to, to do it. And recognizing who we are, recognizing what we've been dealt, and to be able to say every day, because of our faith, Every day is a day that we're closer to being with them again. Mm-hmm. So, Rick, it sounds like you and Cindy are poorer forever having lost Christopher and Matthew, but you're richer forever having known them. Exactly. I like to think that we're who we are be- not because they died, but because they did live. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, now tell us. Now, you went back to Paris. You had fun, but I also know that you guys have re- decided to retire, but you <laughs> were able to look all over the United States. And find the most fun place to be, right? Well, well we were. I uh, I decided one day to take an early retirement. I was in the, the Fortune 100 world, and I came home and I told Cindy, I said, it's your turn. For 32 years, you've been virtually following me around, my job around, setting up housekeeping. And uh, you, this time, you pick a state, you pick a city, and we're going to go back to, to the U.S. And, and live there and retire there. And she picked Williamsburg, Virginia. Oh, I love that. Uh, we hadn't place. been here in a very long time. Came here, looked, said this is it. And uh, some people spend 20 years planning their retirement. 
Ours was more like two days, <laughs> and we don't regret a moment of, uh, you know, a single part of the decision. It's been a wonderful community. Um, after about two years of retirement, I got a little bored, um, and so I said, I'm going to get out and do something. I, I was a terrible golfer, so I had to go out and find something to do, so we both decided we would, and uh, went to work for a shop in an old established business here in town, and I, I now manage a wine shop for them. So that's where they'll find you at Williamsburg at the what? What's the name of it? It's the uh, cheese shop in Merchant Square of Colonial Williamsburg. Oh, I love that. And uh, I run the wine cellar for them down here. And uh, it turns out to be able to take one of your hobbies and enjoy it later in life is uh, is great. And it really brings uh, you know brings me a lot of entertainment. It brings me a lot of happiness. Uh, brings me out in the community to meet people. Mm-hmm. And, and gives is me a Cindy working out. with you there, did you say? Pardon me? Is Cindy working there, too? She worked up in the cheeses and specialty food area for a while, but now she's, uh, now she's doing what she enjoys more is uh, she works in a ladies' clothing store a few doors down from me. So uh, we're right, right in the same part of town here together. We can pop in and out and see each other all day. How fun. And like you said, you both interact with people all day. And we do. And we're, I, you know, after so many years in the corporate world, this is such a different environment, and I didn't know if I'd like it, but I love it. Oh, so you just never know what's going to make you. Now, one of the things I want to talk about a little bit before we close the show is the uh, group you're involved with that you drive 30 miles to go to. For <laughs> talk well, a little bit about that and those it's actually unusual 30 miles. It's, it's three and a half hours driving oh. each, each direction. Wow. Oh my goodness! Um, this is a alternate meeting site of a Compassionate Friends chapter. And it's in the Washington, D.C. area, actually out in Reston, Virginia. And this is for parents with no surviving children. And each month we'll have uh, 25 to 30 parents together. Uh And this is meeting a very unique need for us. We still go to our local Williamsburg chapter and spend time with parents here. And then we all share that common factor that we're trying to go on in our life without those children. But this weather group up in Reston, Virginia, for us, lets us address that those facets of our grief and how we're going through and how we're progressing in our life uh, with the altered future, we'll say, that uh, uh, we all have. And it's just been a tremendous group for us. We get together for holidays. Um, most of us have, uh, you know, small families or, or just aren't comfortable in some of the family environments and have said, this is more family to us. And, mm-hmm. in fact, this, this Sunday is one of those difficult days of the year, which is Mother's Day. Right. Mm-hmm. Mother's Day and Father's Day are very, very difficult with no surviving children because you can't hide from it anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't pick up a newspaper, can't turn on the radio or television, definitely can't go out that day. We get together for Mother's Day. We're driving up there this weekend, and we're all going to have dinner together at somebody's house. Um, we'll get together for... We've gotten together and traveled for Christmas, and we've done it for, you know, all Rick, the Rick, let me ask you a question. If one, somebody in our audience wants to get a hold of you and uh, email you about what's going on in their life for Mother's Day or whatever, mm-hmm. could you give them your email? I would love to. Uh, it's Y-O-T-8, the number 8, at AOL.com. Great. And did you say there's a lady who's very involved with... Uh, Right. There's another uh, separate organization, um, a wonderful lady and her husband in um, Van Wert, Ohio. Uh, Kay and Rodney Bevington run an organization called Alive Alone. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, Live Alone uh, is mostly for a newsletter, but it networks parents nationwide who have no surviving children. Thanks again for being on our show. Thank you, Rick. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.